welcome everybody back to another episode of the basement binge as we continue through nolan november getting pushed a little bit beyond november as this is going up the last day of november and then the final episode tenant will be up about the third of december so just schedule the work out push a little bit past november but hey that's okay still enjoying these wonderful films from christopher nolan as we continue with dunkirk let's just jump right into the episode here with two cents if you're new to the basement binge thank you so much for being here if you're returning also thank you for coming back two cents if you didn't know is just my spoiler free reaction to the film so if you haven't seen dunkirk and you're not wanting it spoiled this is the section for you so so to talk about dunkirk it's it is a very very unique film but it's also a very powerful film christopher nolan mentioned in an interview that i was listening to that he wanted to experiment with throwing the audience right into the third act and making an entire movie with that level of tension normally found in a third act Dunkirk literally does that. You start the movie with characters in the middle of some street with immediate death and peril. No character introductions, no enemy introduction. Just here everything is. This is the threat. This is the risk. This is the terror. We go from one set piece of death and narrow escape to another. From the moment the film starts, you just want these soldiers to be safe. That's all you feel. You just feel an intense level of threat that you don't completely understand, but you know it's there. And you just want these soldiers off the beach. And for almost 90 minutes, they just can't get off the beach. Everything is working against them. It's full of all the things we love Christopher Nolan for. Incredible practical effects, IMAX cinematography that's full of striking images, a Michael Caine cameo, Tom Hardy in a mask, nonlinear storytelling, and deeply personal stakes. The unique thing here is that these stakes are real. This isn't a fantastical event or a story that was made up. This is history. And that adds a weird sense of empathy to the whole thing that normally isn't immediately present in Christopher Nolan's films. In that, and that it's a a war film, Nolan has done something really interesting that you don't typically see in this genre, making it all about the event and a collective group of people almost, not just one particular character. I couldn't even tell you the names of the characters in the film. I had to look them up. But I can now tell you the event of Dunkirk and the great challenge and victory that is the events of Dunkirk. It makes for a very unique viewing experience because it isn't just about this one individual safety, but now 400,000 young men. It makes everything feel much more important and the terror that much more horrifying because the stakes, you know, in whatever film it is, be it a Christopher Nolan film or Guardians of the Galaxy or whatever it is, when the stakes are for the entire world or, or whatever, you know, really big stakes, it's hard to feel that because in the moment it's one character and their particular arc. Where, yes, we do follow characters, we follow groups of individuals, mainly two or three throughout Dunkirk, but the film and the experience is about an entire group. And so that makes the stakes and the fear that much more horrifying. It's very powerful. But it's also something that makes the film a little bit weak because this nonlinear nature that Christopher Nolan loves and, and in his words, the experiment that it is, can take away from the sincerity of those those real moments. So it's kind of a balance that it doesn't achieve perfectly, but it does most of the time. I was about to say the script reads, it's a Christopher Nolan film that I think everyone should see at least once. I'm just going to change that. It's, it's just a film that everyone should see once. The feeling of dread and helplessness creates a new layer of love in my heart for these soldiers. Don't be fooled. This isn't a film in praise of war, quite the contrary, but it does open your eyes to how difficult it would be to be in those situations and gives me, I don't, I don't think this was the intent of the film, but gives me new understanding to things like PTSD. If nothing else, the story of Dunkirk, the real life historic story of Dunkirk is powerful. And the film at least captures that fear and that 
reward that is the story of Dunkirk. And technically, this film is magnificent, very impressive in the technical craft behind it. That's my two cents. There's not much more I can say about this this film, Dunkirk, spoiler free, because maybe you were like me and you didn't even know the story of Dunkirk because you failed history class like I did. Um, there you go. That's as spoiler free as I can possibly make it. Let's get on to the next segment's brief announcement before we do that. Thank you for everybody who's been contributing to everything on Instagram with a post, you know, thoughts on Dunkirk and also the next episode, Tenant. If you want to have your thoughts included in the Tenant episode, let me know. Reach out on social media, comment on a post, letterbox, wherever. Send me an email. All of those are linked in the show notes how you can contact me. Additionally, if you're a big fan of the Spider-Man movies and getting excited for No Way Home coming up, my friend Matt at Matt Goes to the Movies, he's reviewing all of the live action Spider-Man films in preparation for that. You can go check out those episodes. I'll be joining him on a few of those towards the end of that movie marathon, but go check that out if you're interested. Of course, Matt's show linked in the show notes. And with all of those announcements out of the way, let's move on to the next segment here. Pick your poison. This segment, if you didn't know, is a rating scale here at the Basement Binge. Out of four options, how would I interact with the film again? What is the binge ability? Never watch it again. Above that is to stream it, meaning it's on a service I'm already paying for. I'm, I'm just looking for something to watch. I'm browsing. There it is. I'd be willing to click on it. Above that is to rent it. In the right circumstances, pay a few dollars. Redbox digitally, however, rent it. Top of the list, you saw it coming, is to buy it. Digitally, Blu-ray, doesn't matter. This film, to me, is still a buy. I've kind of joked about how all of these films in, in Noel November have been, but it's not as... This film, Dunkirk, isn't as strong as the others were in this rating. It's almost a rent for me. If it wasn't for IMAX and the benefits of 4K Blu-ray I enjoy with this particular film, it would be a rent. Not because it isn't good, just because of the subject matter and how I like to enjoy movies and that this isn't one that I just plan to rewatch as frequently. But when I would make the decision to watch Dunkirk, it would be a solid decision worthy of spending a few dollars on to make it worthy of renting. It teeters into buy because I know it's a film that I will rewatch again. Part of that is my appreciation for Christopher Nolan as a director and not so much the film. And also the reason it's a buy is because it's shot on IMAX and I love the IMAX format. I want to get that on the Blu-ray, which I just, I guess technically you could rent a Blu-ray from Redbox and still get that. Now to think about it, but, but either way, it's kind of right in the line between the two. I think, I mean, I already own the film, so I'm just going to say it's a buy because I, I bought it. But if I were doing it again, this wouldn't be at the top of my list. It would be one of those films that I would get on a good deal on Black Friday or something, which is how I got it in the first place. So that's Pick Your Poison. Let's move on to the next segment, Live Up. This is where I talk about my expectations in going into the film and if the film is able to live up to them, whether that's on the initial watch or on a rewatch. Before I get into my thoughts, though, I want to share the thoughts of other individuals on Instagram that I had asking about this film. I asked my followers on Instagram to rate the film out of 10, and it got a solid, almost perfect five. Some were all the way at zero, some were all the way at 10, and a few were in the middle, ended up at a solid five. The most common word that people used to describe it was intense, very fitting. I asked the question about the three timeline division. Was it cinematic tension or unnecessary complexity? And it's actually perfectly 50-50 at the time, so people couldn't decide. The next question I asked, should Dunkirk be directed by someone else 
there was only one individual who voted on it and he voted 100% it should be directed by Christopher Nolan and nobody else. But Ali, who was on the Nightmare Before Christmas episode, he had some interesting insights. He reached out to me and said, well, is it with the same script or with a different script? And he had some great ideas. He said with the exact same script, I'd say someone more stylized like Cronenberg or Burton, which can at least make the movie look interesting. Then with a different script, hmm, I'd like to see one made by Wolfgang Peterson about this topic, but he's too old. So either Joe Wright or maybe if we want to go deeper, in a redo, in a redo, probably mispronounced that. Anyway, it, it, I love hearing Ali's takes. He he had a lot to say about the film. In fact, I'll just share it now because I thought it was interesting. Because this, he he's rated all of the Christopher Nolan films low that I've been doing over on Instagram every single time he's near the bottom. But this one, it was all the way at zero, like as far as it could go. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is your lowest. What do you think of it? He says, so far, it's my least favorite Christopher Nolan movie of all time. And the reason is that I do actually love World War II movies, so I could see all the movies that did what this movie wanted to much better and with all, without all the pretentious stuff. He said, I think even in the same year, we had a better World War II movie, The Darkest Hour. I asked a follow-up question and said, is it mainly all the Nolan-isms that make you feel that way, like time complexity and lack of emotion and such, or other things, just because those are frequent complaints I hear? And his reply was, a combination of those things, and the fact that the movie does try to draw comparisons with movies like From Here to Eternity, which is kind of bad when your characters have zero emotion in them, but you try to connect your story with one of the most emotional movies of all time. There's also a meta thing I don't like, and that's the nationalism in the movie. Nolan is British, and he's really trying to show bravery in a hacky way. I, I love hearing his insights because he's not American. I'm, I'm clearly American, and it's interesting to see Additionally, he has a lot more experience with non-mainstream films. I've said this before on the podcast, mainly my experience with movies has been mainstream blockbusters. Now it's expanding beyond that and I'm loving it, but you can only watch so many movies at a time. So there's a lot of experience that I'm still catching up on. And so it's interesting to see somebody else's perspective. And, and while I don't agree with him, I can respect that he views it that way. And maybe it's just because I'm blind to some of those things and I don't see it yet. Maybe it's the experience, whatever it is. But I do think it's interesting to see how other people critique it. And maybe these things that intrigue me, the Nolanisms, like the, the very dialed down emotion that's more focused on an event than a character, which to me, I think is really intentional. Well, I think both of us would agree it's intentional. But to me, I think it's, it's well done. I think it serves the story and the event really well. Someone else thinks that it doesn't. It's just, it's interesting to me. Anyway. Enough about that. I also asked on Instagram, would you, what would you say if you had to give a positive recommendation of the film? Ali, who I just talked about, who's been dunking on Nolan this whole time, he said, Michael Caine has a voice cameo, but seriously, on a technical level, it's competent. <laughs> I, I love the use of the word competent. Like it's positive, but not on a full compliment. Maybe it's worse because I completed the sentence in my head to say impressive. So then when I finished the actual sentence and it said competent, it was more of an insult. Either way, it's funny. Rebel Matt 92, he said it puts you on the edge of your seat. But then I had asked a follow-up question, what were Dunkirk's weaknesses? And Ali said story, characters, pacing, and the atmosphere. Rebel Matt 92, who rated the film at a solid five, said character development. So it's it's interesting to see how while the, the ratings for them vary and the praises for them vary, the complaints kind of seem to be down the same. So what was my experience? Enough about other people's, what was my experience? This was the film that I was most excited to revisit this Noel November. I watched it one day randomly with my family and had absolutely zero expectations for it. I honestly didn't even know the story of Dunkirk, okay? I failed history. When someone said Dunkirk, I was like, okay. I almost thought this was like a fictional movie. So going into it, 
expecting whatever I was, it, it was jarring. When you go in expecting a caper or a heist movie or I don't know, anything else that Christopher Nolan has done and then you get a nonstop war film full of tension and twisting timelines that's just filled with ferocity, it, it is confusing and jarring. And so it's not necessarily that I didn't like the film. It just, it caught me so off guard. I, I really, and it is confusing. I didn't know what I thought about it. I mean, I, I know what it is now and I appreciate it for what it is. And so I was excited to revisit it. Like I said, I was particularly to see how the film succeeded or didn't succeed to kind of measure it in its success of being one giant third act. I was interested to see if the nonlinear storytelling would make any more sense this time around. And so, yes, to answer those questions, you are literally thrown right into the third act from the start. The enemy is dropping papers about how desperate we are and that they've completely surrounded us. There's no explanation or rising of stakes. It's just there. The stakes are already set. We are just waiting for the miraculous victory, just like a third act. It takes that suspense and uncertainty in a third act and drags it out for the whole film. And we just, you know, those you get with every film where it's just kind of pushed to the last minute type of thing, you know, that, that they're about, the world's about to blow up and then they, they turn off the switch at the last second. The drawn out tension, that is how the whole film goes because they just can't get off the beach. These escape efforts they make and are just not working. So obviously, in the explanation I just said, the nonlinear storytelling also makes more sense, but not quite enough. No one is good at giving us landmarks in the journey to understand where we are in each thing happening, like specific sounds of bombings, images of a boat, oil in the water, certain placements of planes in the air, etc. You can get the sense of when is what, but it also takes more work than it should. Towards the last 30 minutes or so of the film, the three timelines spill over more and more and we jump between them out of order and it gets kind of confusing to understand the risk. I think I, I have a clear understanding of when the things are happening, but the risk and, and that tension eases a bit because you have to map out, is this a shot that we've already seen? Is, has this plane been shot down in a, sh in, in a scene we saw earlier? Has this group already been saved? Were, were they in the water earlier or were they in the boat earlier? So that, that amount of confusion we get takes something that it should be fearful. and we already know the disastrous nature of, or we already know the victorious nature of, and so it takes away that tension. I feel like Christopher Nolan's intentions in experimenting with this got away from it a little bit, in that those timelines just don't, of, of course, that one lasts over a week, one is a day, one is an hour. So, so time is passing differently, so to speak. But there's a point where those times in my head should match up, and that it... We keep cutting between them too long. I, I, I think that it would have worked better if we did cut between them, but then it reached a point where we see them match up. And when I feel that they should match up and I feel like they are all at the same spot, like it just feels natural. Like, oh, we've arrived to the same place. I, my brain can understand that one journey took a week, one journey took a day, and the plane is taking an hour, but now we're all to the same point in time. And at that point in the story, we're still cutting between the timelines back and forth, and it's just confusing. It's still very powerful, but the weakness that I remember happening the first time is still there. While we're rooting for the entire army of 400,000 men to get off Dunkirk, 
We stay with one group, which is good to see each step in their journey, but also adds to the confusion in the three timelines with wondering where exactly everyone else is with dangers and weapons and a threat to them, right? We're mainly following this group. What about everybody else? And so that, that cutting just goes confusing. So d- did the film live up? Yes. I, I, I was, well, actually, no. To answer the question, honestly, no, it did not live up. My expectations were that it was going to be a little bit better. It was more confusing than I had hoped, and the tension fades more than I wanted it to. But it also ex- lived up to my expectations. I wouldn't say exceed them. It lived up to them in the way that it really is one extended third act, and that tension is really interesting and makes for the experience of the film to be completely different, and I really find more enjoyment in it that way. Also, the nonlinear storytelling does make sense this time around. So it, it, it met those expectations, but also didn't live up to the entire idea of the film in that the power is faded a little bit in the weakness that I've expressed. Let's move on to the next segment, Binge Points. This is now where I just kind of loosely talk about details or fun things about the film or the, the behind the scenes or production of it that I think is interesting. This is definitely not the typical movie for binge points, but there is at least one detail in the movie that I want to mention, and that is the Michael Caine voice cameo. It's just his voice. He is the Fortis leader, the third Spitfire plane that goes down first that we never see. We just hear his voice. It's Michael Caine. So with the one binge point, let's move on to some production details because this film is impressive. It's typical Christopher Nolan fashion. Everything has to be real. So the Spitfire planes that I already mentioned, those are real Spitfires. When we get wide shots of the planes in formation or at the end when Tom Hardy's character is flying over Dunkirk Beach, those are real Spitfires. And the American billionaire Don Friedkin, and he's an avid military aviation collector, he allowed them to use his two, two of his Spitfires from his collection for the movie. They're valued. Each plane is valued at about $5 million. His collection of planes is actually so large that the only individual who owns more Spitfires than him is the Queen of England. He, though, Dan Freydick, was actually one of the pilots. He was the one flying the plane over the beach of Dunkirk with all those soldiers below, which I just think is really cool. But then to get the actors flying in it, obviously you don't want to go screwing holes in a, in a Spitfire and mounting a bunch of cameras to it. So they took a Spanish yacht, is what it's called, a two-seater plane that looks really similar to a Spitfire, changed the, it so it matched it more in the air, but also changed the front cockpit to look like a single cockpit Spitfire. All the controls were disabled, and then they strapped these huge IMAX cameras to the wings and, and to get different angles of the actors within the planes. But then they would have the real Spitfires flying around them in the background. The aerial cinematography of this film really is just impressive. They went to great lengths with having a plane equipped with a, a IMAX camera on the nose and the tail so that they could film it flying in formation with the planes because the helicopter wasn't fast enough, the planes flying blind formation, the work of the actors in the cockpit. I love the aerial cinematography in this film. To get the reaction of the actors, though, what they did is they built this cockpit-like thing on a gimbal and on the edge of the cliff so that you could have the sea and the sky in the background. And it was man-powered, so Chris and usually some other one or two other individuals would move it around and tilt it from side to side and rotate it and tip it and dive it so that you could get the background movement of the sky and sea. And so they had this all planned out to match what work they had done actually in the air and how the planes moved to then move this gimbal thing in the same way and get the reaction of the actors. It, and them all together works really well. Talking about this does get me extremely excited for Top Gun Maverick. 
way excited for that film. Anyway, other details for Dunkirk. The scene in which uh, Tom Hardy's character, Farrier, I think is how you say his name, his Spitfire lands on Dunkirk Beach at the end of the film. That was real. It was done on location with an actual Spitfire. It was actually Dunkirk Beach. It's the first time that that plane has landed on that beach since 1940. They completed the scene. It got stuck in the mud. They had about 40 minutes of time frame to get it done because the tide comes back and forth. So then there was just this frantic rush to get the Spitfire off the beach before the tide came in and damaged it. The other really cool thing is 12 of the original little ships that participated in the Dunkirk evacuation appeared in the movie, reenacting their presence from 1940. It's just great to, ha- to have such realness in it. I know, watching the movie, I wouldn't, wouldn't be able to tell you which ones they are. It's amazing that that is a real thing in history that has been done. Despite the flaws that this film has, it does treat the real-life event of Dunkirk with great respect. Christopher Nolan went to a lot of links to meeting with few of the surviving veterans from Dunkirk and talking with them, and their experience really affected the script and actually led in him casting really, really young actors because he realized that these individuals who were there on the beach were young men. To get back into the production details for the battleships, obviously we're, they're not going to get a French battle or a British battleship out of the museum, so they took French battleships and reconstructed them on the outside to look like British battleships. Pretty impressive. For shooting the soldiers on in queues on the beach, there was over a thousand extras they had all in costumes. For soldiers in the far distance, they had something they call fences or pretty much paintings of soldiers cut out on paper with metal mesh wiring on the back of them so that they could stand up just out there way off in the distance. And it's just impressive that each one of those extras was in costume. Even some crew members like the costuming team or the hair and makeup team or maybe some assistant directors, they were all in kind of makeshift costumes that that weren't 100%, but they were matched in such a way that they could duck behind someone and, and not ruin the shot. And so it allowed them to be particularly the assistant directors directing the extras as needed and then be able to disappear in the crowd. And just, it's really well done. They capture the feeling of 400,000 men just sitting here waiting on a beach incredibly well. But those are all the bench points. Like I said, this isn't a typical bench point film. So let's move on to the second and last segment here, lease and likes. Just like the name of it implies, it's my least favorite scene and my favorite scene. You probably already guessed it based on what I talked about in Live Up. My least favorite scene is that section of time towards the end of the film where we it's around the time that the ship uh, is bombed and the oil spills into the ocean before the fire happens, though, right before the fire. Around that time, we're cutting between the timelines and it, just, it's, it is just too much. It, it just doesn't work and it's, it's confusing. Don't like it. But what is my favorite scene? This is one of the ships, either right before or after the scene I mentioned, show up to Dunkirk and we get this great score and the soldiers cheering but the dread and worry comes right back. The victory is not yet won. It's foreboding and terrifying. It shows the hope that these civilians brought and the power of collective valiant efforts, but doesn't just solve the problem immediately. It shows the danger still ahead and the courage that it took for these people to be willing to show up in Dunkirk. Just because they showed up doesn't mean the danger is gone. And I really, that moment to me, captures everything that is the story of Gun- Dunkirk really well. And it's a, a very powerful scene, especially everything we see that before that. And just nothing else is working. They need a miraculous extraction. And these civilians are their miracle. And it's powerful. And it shows the hope that they brought. 
also shows the despairing nature of the war that it's putting on all people, not just soldiers. It shows the courage of civilians. It's, it's a, a very, very well done scene. That's a great segue into the last segment, Fall In, where we talk about meanings or messages from the film, which clearly a war film of this nature has a lot of them. I took away the power of collective effort. There was a quote I read this week that said, small efforts collectively make a big impact. And I think it's really interesting as you understand more and more about Dunkirk, the reality that is Dunkirk. For example, Christopher Nolan, either in the 80s or 90s, I don't remember, with his now wife at the time, his girlfriend, Emma Thompson, they took a journey on a little boat with a friend of theirs, I think, across the channel to Dunkirk. It took them about 19 hours. They left at 5 a.m. and didn't show up to Dunkirk until 1 a.m. This is a tough journey. This just isn't a sail over the lake or whatever. This, this is a tough, long journey. And that's without all the fear of dive bombers above you and a, a continually approaching German army. What these civilians did collectively is powerful. If one boat showed up, we probably wouldn't have a movie about it. The world would probably be different if Britain would have had to kind of just give up to the demands of Germany. World War II would be completely different if Dunkirk went differently. And so way be, I mean, it's already powerful enough that 400,000 or close to 400,000 individuals were saved. That's already incredible. But it also would have changed history as we know it. It'd probably be a completely different world. If I remember what I read right, it was about 800 boats that showed up. That's just, just powerful. About a thousand individuals, if not more, brave enough to go save these young men. But even their efforts wouldn't have been nearly as successful without the help of the Air Force and brave individuals like Tom Hardy's character willing to sacrifice himself and be captured so that many other soldiers could be saved. The collective effort making such a huge impact on the individual lives of these thousands of men, but also on the, the trajectory of World War II and the world as we know it. There's not much more you can say beyond that. Small efforts collectively make a big impact. And I just think that that's really powerful. And it's, it's something that even before this film has been on my mind, the holiday season is coming up. This is a time that I, I want to find a way to do good. And I can go out there and I can do good. But if there's a collective effort, it can make a big impact. And so if you have any suggestions for some organization or event that's going on or something or, or want to organize something, you have some ideas, please send me an email and let me know. I'd love to get involved when that add to collective effort. I plan to have a plan by the tenant episode so that I can share with all of you the way that I want to add my efforts to this collection of other individuals' efforts to make a big impact and invite you to do the same. There is something that just really, really broke my heart. Time magazine released their 100, 100 images of 2021. There wasn't many of them, if any, that were really happy. There is a lot going on in the world, and, and this podcast <laughs> is not going to solve every single one of those problems, but it just, it between that, the film just the holiday season, what's already been on my mind. I, I know there's a, at least big differences 
in individuals' lives we can make through our collective efforts. So looking forward to understanding how I can do that. Let me know some ideas. What are you doing this holiday season? I'd love to share your thoughts on that because those, those do make a big impact. As always, thank you everybody for listening to this episode. Whether it's your first or hundredth or hundred and fifth or whatever number we're on at this point, thank you for being here. Thank you for enjoying these Christopher Nolan films with me throughout Nolan November. Although today is the last day of November, there is one more episode coming on Tenant. I'd love to know your thoughts on that. Love to know what you're doing to make an impact in the world this holiday season. Let me know. Social media, email, all of that linked in the show notes. But once again, this is The Basement Binge. My name is Harrison. This is Nolan November. That's all for now. Ciao, ciao. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.